Welcome to the Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and believe it or not, this is the last episode of season one. We've met CEOs and innovators who've raised millions to support their ideas. Ideas that have the potential to push back against climate change and push back hard. With the help of these entrepreneurs, humanity has an opportunity to leverage our ingenuity to reduce our carbon footprint and bring the world closer to net zero emissions. The show has exceeded all of my expectations, and so much of that is thanks to you. You've given us your ears and your five-star reviews, which has made us the top net zero podcast in the game. I'm stoked to share that the team and I are already working on season two. We're taking a short summer vacay to record new episodes, and we'll be back in August with some incredible guests, some of whom are working to create electricity from ocean waves, and others who are helping you make more informed consumer good purchases through browser extensions. Joining me for the final episode of season one is a climate podcasting legend, Peter Levin. Peter is the founder and host of the In Good Hands podcast, a podcast about the businesses and founders taking on the climate problem set. Peter's interviewed some of the biggest names in climate, including Bowery Farming, Boxed Water, and TerraCycle. During the interview, Peter and I dive into his life as a New Yorker, discuss what it's like to run his own board game company and sustainability podcast, and any life lesson he's taken away from interviewing over 100 guests on his show. Peter and I also share some ideas for what we think the future of sustainability holds, including how we can best utilize our knowledge and networks. Make sure to listen until the end because we have a once in a lifetime opportunity for our listeners. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Peter Levin, founder and host of the Climate Podcast in Good Hands. I'm What's Nathan. Up, yeah, how's it going? I'm Peter. I'm Nathan. Good Thanks. to meet you for yeah, the first time. Yeah, I know. Let's also, go. it's crazy. I feel like COVID in New York, so funny. It's like dangerous what you say about COVID, right? But it's like you're double vaxxed. Uh-huh. I'm double vaxxed. Tony's double vaxxed. It's just like I played basketball indoors yesterday for the first time in God knows how long. Wait, you're a hooper? Uh, I'm a Jewish hooper, you know, like a Jewish six foot, uh, less than, like officially 5'10", um, not even if we're like being super precise, but, um, you know, I played like small Jewish school, played basketball. Did you do you ball? No way. Every single day. Oh. Every single day we had a crew, 6 p.m. There's like 35 of us in this group and whoever makes it out, we do a little, we have three half courts. Okay. And we just run for two and a half, three hours. Every day. Every single day. Does your back hurt? I, have you reached that point yet? No, I feel good. Yeah, I feel good. Knock on wood. Can I ask how old you are? Uh, twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Okay, yeah. me too. Yeah. I, I feel like I feel like old man back. I mean, we're talking to you know Tani, who's like the true uh, back game expert. More baseballer, but you ball a little bit. I played as much varsity as you did in, in yeah. high school. I played varsity for a year. So did I. Oh really? Basketball. 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 Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit. A lot of ball one time. Okay. Hell's Kitchen. Remind me where Hell's Kitchen is. It's like. 40, the mid 40s to the upper 50s. On the east or west? West. West. Okay, nice. so pretty close to here. Yeah. Nice. Favorite coffee shop and or bagel place? Or just like New York classic thing? So bagels, pick a bagel. Pick a bagel? Okay. I think. I guess how you look at it, the, the problem with pick a bagel is it's a well-known stalwart, so the line is minimum 30 minutes. Okay. But it's worth the wait. Coffee? Ah. Oh. So, I would say Laughing Man has got to be King of the Castle. That's Tribeca area. It's Hugh Jackman's cafe. He owns it? Yeah. Why? Oh, it is, and it is amazing. You go down there, they set up a little turf outside so people bring all their puppies. You just go there. It is the quintessential people and dog watching haven, and the coffee is really good. Do you get, what kind of coffee do you get? Basic. Basic? I do uh, iced coffee, mm. tiny splash of cream. In the winter as well? 
365. I can't do hot. I can't do hot. Okay. I'm like a hot hot person. I started drinking coffee during the pandemic, ironically. And I have a rule where I try and not drink it on work days. I had it today. I'm feeling it. I talk a million miles an hour. Um, But I feel like it's like beer. You know, like I feel like I started drinking beer in college and I don't, I didn't like the taste of beer. You have to like drink it enough. You're like, okay, like this is what it tastes like. And I kind of like it. Um, I feel like coffee's the same way. It's just like super bitter. No one's like meant to like it. The first time you drink it, you're like wired out of your mind. Right. And then you drink it enough. I just love the process. I had an AeroPress um, back in Seattle and like, I just love the grinding the beans, put it in, you measure, blah, blah, blah. It could be like the engineer in me. And I started making it. Look at this thing to our left. I know. For anyone listening, there's some really sophisticated looking machine that I think spits out coffee. It's espresso. Espresso. Nice. nice. A coffee is espresso, right? You just add water. Yeah. Tell me about your cup. Oh yeah. So this is a guest we had on the pod, Stojo. Stojo. Are you familiar with nope. Stojo? Okay. Nope. So, uh, anyone listening, go to Stojo.co. This company based here in Brooklyn. They are positioning themselves as Tupperware 2.0. Okay. And their key differentiator is all of their products are collapsible. All right. The problem with Tupperware is, uh, A, it hasn't really changed much. Its original use case was, you know, stored away and then put into a fridge or to into your bag. It's not designed for portability. So... I mean, look at this. Yeah, we're looking at a cabinet right now. Most people's cabinets are filled with Tupperware and it doesn't look good. Imagine, you know, 10xing the amount of units you can put into a small space. You can bring around a little coffee mug that you can fit into your pocket, expand it out, put coffee into it. They do bowls, they do whole nine. So they are very interesting. Can you take, also just quick sidebar, it's so interesting. Now that we're in person, I can like signal to you that I want to jump in. I don't know if you feel like online, it's like much harder to do that. Oh, and, and there's a delay with Zencast or yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, so I know like, oh, hey, I want to jump in on what you're saying. Um, can you bring that to a coffee shop and they fill it up for you? You have to like get a like cup and then pour it in. So pre-COVID, yes. A lot of the cafes here when yeah. no reusable yeah, makes sense but um a lot of the indie cafes still honor it okay um and i think over the next year and change the forever container will be the de facto approach I and think all starbucks shops. is doing that Did yes. you see that in seattle yeah, in seattle they're like trialing borrow a cup thing so i don't know we'll have to figure out it's going one quick Tupperware story is that my mom, uh, who's like underrated, she's uh, she's about to retire from teaching, but she's such a side hustler. She was a an assistant manager at McDonald's. Meanwhile, she was like keeping kosher. Um, actually, maybe not at that time, but she also sold Tupperware on the side. Like she's the ultimate hustler. I had no idea this is the case. She's like a regular like fifth grade history teacher, and she was as she calls it like a Tupperware lady. So I'll have to see wow. if she's in helping us dojo. Wow. Um. So I'm thinking for the conversation today. Yeah. I will, can we start? Well, first, I just want to say, um, New, I feel like I, I've appreciated New York in a way that I never have. Like, the energy. Like I'm kind of into the, like, driving where you just, like, you cut people off and, like, nobody gets upset about it. You're just, like, you're putting yourself in there. And I like, get hyped on that. But the subway is the utmost, like, mindfulness practice practice. You just have to be, like, okay, 
it's coming late. It says zero minutes, but the train is not here. <laughs> like, I will just have to be calm. And I was late to this interview because of the subway. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get there 50 minutes early. Da, da, da. I don't know. Do you, is that every day? Do you, like, people, are people pissed off because the subway's always late? What's the deal? I would say for the most part, the New York subway, subway is fine. It is my preferred mode of transportation in the city. Uh, I'll caveat that by saying City Bike now does e-bikes across most of their stations. And in the summer, that's amazing. Like low effort biking across the city. Do you wear a helmet? Don't wear a helmet, no. Mm. But yeah, you know, you cruise, you go to the West End Highway. <laughs> there's no cars. You're just, you know. Risk tolerance is such an interesting thing. I know. Um, but I would say for the most part, I don't know. I think the issues with the subway is overblown. It's it's pretty good. You can get anywhere you want. You got to bake in, you know, 15, 20 minutes because there's going to be issues. I learned. But I learned. Yeah, I mean, it's it works. Okay. Um, and so we met via one of the people I interviewed, who you also interviewed, Corey Nobly yep. uh, of Impact Snacks. Yep. And I saw your podcast. It was like super cool. You also interviewed some huge names. When did you start your podcast? And like, what was the genesis for that? So the genesis was a general disappointment with how people talked about climate. I think today uh, that narrative has changed quite a bit. People see the regulatory tailwinds. Everyone's talking about climate, wanting to work in it. But at, you know, two years ago, it was the fight against climate change. It was this you know apocalyptic future that was imminent. And so... The genesis was, why isn't there a how I built this for climate? Where the sole message we're trying to get across is, A, there are people trying to manifest a better future. And then B, I think more practically, there are ways to make a lot of money by solving parts of the climate problem set. And it didn't crystallize in that way when I first started, but once we got a few reps under our belt, that is the messaging that has seemed to work. Convincing people that it's not just signs and picket fences, you know, people standing out saying down with A or Y. These are people just like every one of us that want to build something that happens to be a bit more planet friendly. Yeah, there's so much I want to jump off on. First of all, like how I built this is just like the paragon of all podcasts. Like, I feel like everyone, 100%. like that's their entry into podcasting and then they want to emulate it. Um, and then that, and then how many episodes did it take? Because people, I, I have a friend who's a consultant. He's always like strategy, strategy, strategy. And I'm like, no, let's just do, do, do. Right. And so like, did you have a strategy? How, when you said it took a few episodes to nail it down, how many did it take until you're like, and how many have you done? Like 180? We're almost at 100. 100. And that is, a, that is a great question. When I first started, it was more out of... A general disappointment in myself that I was just sitting on the sidelines not doing anything yeah and having conversations is really the lowest effort or lower lowest commitment way to start doing something so at the time it was my side hustle slash excuse to start talking to people learning about how I can start making change but I had no idea what the end goal of the podcast would be. And I still am kind of like, I feel like I have imposter syndrome. You know, I've, I've got all these episodes under my belt. But frankly, I have no idea what the future of 
the media company will look like. I don't know what In Good Hands will look like in a year from now. But I will say maybe 10, 15 episodes in, once I started talking to people and then, you know, pretty much probing the 10 or 15 listeners we had, where am I sucking? What are you enjoying most? People stopped saying they don't they don't want to listen to the backstory they just want to hear hey show us the cool thing that they're bringing to life and then how they're making money it's that simple so you you can actually hear if you guys listen to episodes one through eight or nine the intro music is this like aspirational like we're about to watch Seaspiracy and this epic music and at like 9 or 10 you can see we made this really hard pivot towards uplifting exciting because that's what we want the episodes to be you come in not knowing anything about a topic and now you have someone that looks or like us or is roughly our age that's just trying to build something right and making money along the way so that was the big switch. Nine or ten episodes in, oh, we want to show people that the world is getting better. And then it's it's not that complicated. It's just people just want to know over 30, 40, 40 minutes that you can make money and it's not that complicated. You know? Yeah. It's so interesting because I've talked to, I feel like founders want to talk about the why, like the philosophical, which mm-hmm. I also find myself interested in. Mm-hmm. But Tani, my executive producer, is, is coaching me more along the lines kind of, of what you're saying. Um, we're only eight episodes in, so we'll see how it changes. Mm-hmm. How many people listen to your latest episode, do you know? Oh, like within the first week. It's so funny. If you feel comfortable. Tani, no, no, no. Tani and I were just talking about this. I was like, I am such a noob when it comes to analytics. The only thing I look at is like this. I'll show you this like Squarespace. Yeah, I'll give you guys the tea right now. So this is, we use Squarespace for hosting, right? This like shows all of our analytics. Every time we publish an episode, it distributes it to Apple, Spotify, etc. The only like bellwether metric I have is this. So like last year we were hovering at five thousand subs. Now we're at twenty one thousand twenty three. That's a lot of people. So yeah, but like I don't know. Like, what does this mean, right? <laughs> like, is this the amount of people that are clicking to our site? Is it the people that have clicked follow? You know, I think there's a benefit to being super transparent. I don't think I'd want to monetize. And the reason is twofold. One, so we try doing ads out of the gate um, with Bite Toothpaste. I'm good friends with with Asher and Lindsay over there. And like, oh my God, you're doing this thing. We're going to support you. Uh, just give a shout out and do a little ad read for the first, I think it was eight episodes when we were having that like super aspirational music. Yeah. And I, I, I could be totally wrong about this, but one, um, I just think most people... 15, 15, 15. Yeah. We'll just click through the ads. 100%. And two, I don't think that's what I want in good hands. I don't think that's how I would like to monetize the franchise going forward. I think when I think about what we do here, and this is like now I'm just spitballing here. So like if you were to ask me if I wanted to make in good hands a full-time enterprise, most people would say you should do ads, you should do merch. And I just don't think that's how 
uh, I've been able to connect deepest with our audience. I think people come to get educated. And so I think the opportunity for us going forward, and this is like one of our, one of the ideas I'd love to riff on is doing masterclass how to for dummies around sustainability topics. So imagine you have co-authored pieces, courses, whatever you want to call them with some expert on a topic. So how to make your fashion line greener. And this is co-authored by the head of sustainability at Patagonia, the person that's pioneering Eileen Fisher's, you know, reformation line. Did you do any advertising or outreach? I didn't. This is that it's all organic. And I think the thing that I should have been more willing to do is ask the guests to promote Mm. because the one time, so the biggest inflection point and again, this is like radical transparency. So when we look at these metrics, let me, I wonder if I can pull up last year. Wow. So that big jump, this week's episode was Bowery farming. And to this day, we still get referrals from whatever they did. My guess is, I mean, they have a very significant email list. I think they just sent it to their entire mailing list. Hey, listen to this pod. We had, you know, our chief commercial officer and chief marketing officer. It's great, blah, 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 blah. I didn't even see what it was, but I remember looking at what the referral traffic was coming from. It was from like something, something, something dot boweryfarming.com. And it was that week. And so this, I can show you too. This is the, huh, that's how you do it. You just ask the guests to tell their audience that they talked to you about what they're working on. It's that simple. So that's what I didn't do up until, I don't know, episode 30, 40. And it's a relatively low effort ask, you know? So crazy. And then, so you're saying it was like monetization. Before we even get to monetization, I'm curious, uh-huh. like, has it opened any doors for you in a surprising way? And then also maybe like say what you do full time. Yeah. So uh, full time, I am the founder of a game studio called Hunch Studios. Right now we make adult party games in the same genre of Cards Against Humanity. So we made Incoherent and we have a whole franchise of expansion packs in that family. We have a dare game coming out in July, a drinking game coming out in June. Uh, another adult came coming out in November. So that's the vast majority of my mind share. One of the interesting things is I think is that it's hard to create a lot of tension in climate change because it's like these externalities that you don't see. Mm-hmm. Um, an example, like you can in the biggest loser, right? Like they're super trim, right? But in climate change, it's just like you look out the door and you still see the same air that you see. I and mean, maybe if you removed like, all of the smog, right? But that's like a, a ten-year kind of thing. The big reveal is just not—it's not the story that climate change is telling. It's like slow, slow and smooth, right? Mm-hmm. Is the way to change the world. But it's hard to like wrap the human element around that and create tension, create a story. Stuff for the podcast as well. Like I'm wondering, we talked about how I built this, and I, I don't know if how I built this has tension. They create tension via the music and all the stuff, but. I think that we're almost more, I'm curious your, your thoughts here, like more of like a Tim Ferriss interview, just like tell me about it. And, and 
uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about like what is a great question uh, and and how to create tension because it's difficult. Mm-hmm. That is a great observation. Yeah, how we built this solves that problem by how they cast. All of their guests have went through a journey of sorts, right? So there's always some antagonist or some chapter in the story that was really hard, you know. Right, right. And they always have this, you know, uh, they have the the winning protagonist moment at some point. So the arc is very well defined there, and they do that by casting accordingly. You're right around it, with our style of pod. Um, the final chapter is so far away, right? Many of these companies are have some thesis around what the future will look like and believe that their solution will be a minor part of that. But you're at that point, you're still convincing the world that your worldview or your thesis is what will be true or fact. And that's just not a problem that some of the guests on how I built this have. So, right. And there's also no, like, I, I don't think these companies yet can then draw the line to say like, Hey, I did X and now the result is Y. Right. Uh, which is, is but at the same time, like you talk to them now and then who knows, 10 years down the road, it's just a long game, which 100%. is like not a human thing to do. Right. That's, that's why like we get notifications on Facebook cause it feels good. It's instant. Right. It's also why I think I take a liking to consumer products because Unlike many of the moonshot companies that you and I have interviewed that are talking about some version of the future that could exist or have to do many, many things in order for it to be economically feasible, consumer products are something that already exist in real life that listeners can feel and touch and integrate into their lives. I mean, we just talked about Stojo. Yeah. Right? It's very easy to see how reusable, collapsible, portable starts replacing single-use, clunky, expensive to the world in every category of CPG. And this is what all my friends ask me about. You know, now once you do the podcast, you kind of put yourself out there and you say like, "Hey, like I'm sustainable, right?" And so everyone's like, "Did you fly here?" <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh-huh. Um, and but people are, I think, are constantly asking me what can I do differently? Like they just want to take action. Right. And so the consumer goods, I think is just that at the same time, like I struggled because when I started, I was creating like, what do I want to talk about? And I thought it was going to be consumer goods, but I found myself like more and more interested in kind of like the business to business world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because I felt like that's really where the impact was going to be. That mm-hmm. a lot of this like true climate action needs to happen behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But the other thesis I had is that everyone's everything is an individual, right? Like people represent governments, people are corporations, and so you just have to shift their minds. And maybe the medium to do that is through consumer products. That is so spot on. I mean, you look at yesterday was the big landmark case against Shell, right? So you had, I don't know if you saw that. Oh my gosh, this Tell is a, a landmark case where the courts are now requiring Shell to reduce their carbon emissions by 40%. Which courts? Uh, I think it was Dutch. In Europe. In Europe, yeah. Okay. Um, but it's not just that Exxon too. Yes. Yeah. The oil companies got, can I swear on your pod? Yeah, you They got fucked up yesterday in a great way. Like, uh, so we had the Shell case. Um, Exxon and BP are getting pressure from 
board directors that right. are right. I saw that. I saw yep. that. And there's uh, two, I think, very well known activist investors that are joining one of their boards. That will be number one, maybe. I, I think so. I, I, yeah. I'm not sure, but the I think you're right in that CPG is the medium where individuals can feel like they can vote with their dollar. They can see how these changes don't require compromises to lifestyle. But the the big impact opportunities are the B two B, right? It's what Stripe is doing with Stripe Climate. You know, every single with a click of a button, anyone that's selling something online can check this box, and a percentage of sales goes to offsetting, you know, the supply chain or the footprint of the purchase, and that is enormously impactful. And then you had, I think. Uh, some type of carbon capture company on the pod, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, those those companies are absolutely necessary. But it feels like, I mean, even today, Stripe had, they, they had this big uh, summit yesterday where they brought on uh, Running Tide that's doing carbon sequestration in the form of kelp, um, Heirloom that's doing it in the form of like mineralization. We just was, interviewed them last week. Did you? Yeah. Okay, super cool. So you have all these companies, but today... Uh, if you're going to go to a company or an individual and ask them to offset their footprint in some way, those companies are incredibly expensive to do so versus, you know, protecting forest or planting new trees. But the uh, permanence, additionality of those projects are way more impactful than the tree, you know, the $15 per ton that we see in protecting our it's also like to use an Amazon and I, right, I work for Amazon, everything I say, my opinion, not Amazon's, I don't want to get fired. Um, and I also like appreciate the irony of working for like a consumer goods company, yeah. like, right? Um, but all that saying, they have this idea called like day one mentality. Uh, and it is truly day one. Like I read one of my favorite books ever is The Last Days of Night, which is about like the electri- electrification of the US. It starts here in New York. Amazing story. Everyone should read the book. Um, but it, the cost of electricity was astronomical in the beginning and they were also running it on dc current right which if you like, you put your hand on it's going to go through you versus ac and it's a battle between tesla and edison super cool but in the same regard like we're day one for carbon capture right like we you have to start somewhere and mm-hmm. and like i've been we interviewed someone else who said i think these were his words or i at least interpreted which was that like climate change is is a race the race to protect the climate and it's totally a marathon at the same time, the consumer goods things bringing it full circle is like it's that's a sprint and it feels good. Like we want to sprint, but mm-hmm. really it's like it's totally a marathon. And maybe it starts with just like changing people's minds to how, how they feel. I think the best thing that I can do because I'm not an expert, although I'm curious to hear like after doing like almost 100 episodes, where you feel in terms of like what percentile of climate knowledge do you have versus like the rest of the world. Um, but the best thing I can do is just broaden the audience of people who are interested, right? Because I'm not an expert. I'm not a policy person, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. I'm not even, I mean, in my day to day, I do work on it, but yeah. That is a, I love that uh, question observation as well. Our audience, the average person who listens to the show is someone who has never purchased a Stojo cup before, right? Has never offset their flight. These are people who are generally curious or interested around the work that's being done here, but their knowledge is quite literally at level one. And I think that to me is what's so exciting because 
we tailor our conversations to be very non-technical layperson. And the way that we connect with the average person is something that everyone understands. And I keep saying the same talking point, which is how to make money, but it truly is how the average person is wired today. Where we choose to invest our time and our energy is directly to proportional to how we're compensated for that time and energy. And so we reverse engineer from, I guess, that belief or worldview. And that's why our conversations are non-technical. They assume the listener is an amateur, like I am, on most of these topics. Then we just say, hey, this is the problem we're solving. This is how we're making money from it. And this is how you can do something similar on your own. You can also join this company if you want to feel like you'd like to participate in some meaningful way. But we, sh- at least I try as I steer the conversations. The second I feel an ounce of something that I start to not understand fully, uh, it is the perfect opportunity to pause and segue to something that gets us back to that key through line. And we'll use this to kind of jump into our, our idea riff, as we call it. But I'm curious, do how much of your audience feedback do you get? So we talked about like, you know, 25,000 subscribers. How much, how many of them are reaching out and giving you feedback? Or how do you, like you described your audience, like you know them very personally. And then once you, if you do have that super interactive audience, how do you want to leverage it into whatever's next? That's such a good question. To date, the primary back and forth has been through email. Okay. Uh, I also write a weekly email called Above the Fold, where sometimes we'll talk about the pod, but that's typically the way that we interact. And two is Instagram. When someone disagrees with, <laughs> it was actually funny. So we had, oh, I don't want to name drop them, but we had uh, one guest on the show and someone called me out for giving airtime to someone that they felt was greenwashing. Mm. And this company just announced they just raised, you know, millions of dollars and the the community I think tends to believe that what they're doing is great as I did. But this is a listener who is totally right in feeling how they did. And it just made me think and this is a long-winded version of saying it made me much more conscious of what it means to give airtime to somebody and how when people choose to invest 30 or 45 minutes into two people talking, they've come to expect that you've filtered for certain criteria. And I didn't really come to appreciate this, but now that we've grown quite a bit, it just really was a splash of water in the face that one of the questions that you wrote to me last night was like, how do you prep or how do you, you know, get your guests? Now we do way more front loading on the prep to make sure that when we're giving airtime to somebody, 
they are completely aligned with what we want to do, which is show people that you can make money by solving climate in meaningful ways. Not someone that has an ounce of climate that they use as a tagline in their marketing collateral to give off the impression that what they're doing is good for the world. So I've messed up a few times by doing that and because of outreach via email or, or you know Instagram calling me out on just that, that's been I think kind of the, the one of the great ways that we've interacted with audience and they have checked me on what I should really be doing, you know? And so did you feel that this person was speaking out for the general audience who listens to your show? Or is this like an individual who's kind of more on the, the tail end of the spectrum, but in this case was right? I think the latter. I think tail end, someone that is much more educated on all things climate. But it was, I think, a necessary reminder that because the average person is not that person and people are just coming to assume that what we talk about and who we put on is what's best for the world, there's a lot of responsibility in that, right? So uh, kudos to that person. And since that moment, we've been hyper vigilant and making sure that people and the founders we put on are, like I said, very tightly integrated to our core thesis there. And we, we said that we weren't going to talk about too much podcasting, but <laughs> two minutes maybe to answer how do you do your prep? How much time does it take? And do you have like a plethora of companies waiting to be on the show and that you have the opportunity to then pick and do your due diligence? Uh, so now we have a solid queue. When we started, it was, it felt like you were on a hamster wheel. You'd record and, and then you'd say, hey, if in order for us to hit the weekly cadence, we got to reach out. We got to ask someone to talk in the next 48 hours. Now, as we've learned that that is not the best way to do things, we have a recorded post-produced queue of six to eight episodes and then actively casting maybe two or three months out. So at this point, we try to, uh, I guess, like front load a lot of that stuff. And then if... You know, Dan, who's our producer, is busy, or I can't record for the next two weeks. Now we can tap into at least a, a small inventory to make sure we're hitting the weekly cadence. That has been our North Star for whatever reason. Every every major podcaster I've heard has told us to make sure you're hitting the cadence. You know, if people have come to expect Tuesdays, if you miss a Tuesday, people will remember that, and then maybe we'll stop searching for your pod or yeah. checking in. Um, how many hours of prep do you think you do per episode uh, before recording? Probably 90 minutes 90 to two minutes. hours. Okay. The bulk of what I do, so I'll, I'll go on the founder's LinkedIn. And I, you brought up this point, like, you know, how do you craft the perfect question? Many times I found the greatest sources of good questions have been at the very bottom of someone's LinkedIn. You look to see, like, a project they were a part of, a volunteer experience, a weird, you know, resume bullet point so that is typically a talking point i like to integrate and then 
looking at all the most recent media, how other press outlets talked about them, major milestones, but 90, 90 minutes to two hours on average. But those don't, those are separate from the questions you said earlier, which were like, we ask, how do you make money? Mm -hmm. Right. And like, what do you do to help the climate? Mm -hmm. So do you, so you do both though? So you do those questions and then is that just to like introduce the character? So, uh, yes. Character being individual, not people. Yeah. At, at this point, I actually do not premeditate the question list. Wow. Um, I mean, we've done it so many times yeah. where it's roughly templated. We're going to start with what your Eureka moment was. We'll get into the core product offering. We'll get into how you make money from that core product offering. And then we'll tease what cool products or services are in the pipeline. That's, you know, the, the rough outline of the show. And then, to your point, we sprinkle in the character by bringing up some hidden gem on your LinkedIn or going into, like my favorite thing actually is like going down to when people give or get recommendations. And so you bring up, you know, person X that you worked with on this project. What was it like working with that person? Um, or even stalking them on Instagram and then saying, hey, you went here. But yeah, it's, it's pretty formulaic and then once you hear something that's interesting, like what we're doing now, the second you hear something that's like, oh, we got to dig a, a bit deeper there, then you just kind of rock and roll. Do you feel like being a podcaster has made you a better conversationalist in real life? Oh my gosh, that's, look at, this is, these are great. 100%, right? I mean, uh, A, from being able to sit patiently and let someone talk, I'm still miserable at this because I get so excited and I want to jump in and I want to talk to you. But it, one of the great learned skills of professional conversations is learned patience, letting someone get their bit out and then responding, you know? So yeah, that's a long-winded version of saying yes. I'm like ready to jump in right after you. <laughs> the irony there is like so palpable, but 100%. And I, 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 I bring up Tim Ferriss a lot because I think he's a fantastic podcaster. And I listen to a lot of his first episodes and you hear him like this, like acknowledging the speaker during the response, like, mm -hmm, yes. And you don't hear any of that now, right? 500 episodes in. And I think a part of that is being an amazing active listener because it's twofold. One, you have other questions that you want to ask, but you want to like tell a straight line narrative. You want to have that arc. And two, you want to be able to, if you say something interesting, I want to be able to jump in there. And like you said, dive into it. So it's so fascinating. It definitely has made me a better listener. Mm -hmm. Kind of like you're saying. Um, so I've been thinking about this idea for a bit. Yeah. Can I pitch you? Let's do it. Okay. So, uh, and it's uh, coincidental because you work at Amazon. Uh, so yesterday, I was reminded of this idea because my fiance and I were cleaning out the apartment and she pulled up one of the Amazon poly mailers. And she asked me, how do I dispose of this? Is it in the paper? Is it uh, plastic recyclable? Is it something that I should just throw away in the trash? And I didn't know the answer because it was it was the, the the poly mailer that's paper on the outside lined with the bubbles wrap on the inside. Blue and white. Uh, it was this one was tan. Okay. And then sticker on the top, and it's an idea that I've been sitting on for weeks now. I actually talked about it with the founder of Goldune. Plant ID for recycling or waste management, right? Over the last year, it feels like everyone has. Uh, at least gain this obsession or fascination with plants. 
And as a byproduct, Plant ID, I think that's the name of the company, is crushing it in the App Store. Plant ID is like where you take a photo of the plant and it tells you what it is? Yeah, you take a photo of the app, it tells you what it is, it tells you how you should care for it, it tells you where you're going wrong, it's getting too much sunlight, too little water, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's like your Bible or your Torah for how you should be taking care of your plants. Why isn't there point and shoot for waste management where you can pick up any product, you scan it, and based on your local waste management capabilities, it gives you the best recommendation for how you should dispose. The reality is, in most jurisdictions throughout the US, most plastics should be thrown away into the trash. But people see the resin ID that looks like a recycling symbol, and they throw it into the recycling bin, not knowing that it's just gonna end up burned and won't get recycled. So why isn't there point and chew or plant ID for waste management that just tells you how to do it? Yeah, so many things to talk about here. The first is like, should we be recycling in general, right? And let's talk about how like the US as a nation sucks at recycling. In 2018, China stopped taking our, our recycling. The price of recycling per ton drops 90%. Now most of recycling goes to like Vietnam, which is super interesting. New York Times did a great article. Um, you can put that mm -hmm. in the show notes. The there's plant ID in the old fashioned way and that there's symbols that there's symbols that say like which stream this can go in, but it requires more effort, right? It's easier to point and shoot. Um, you know, we'll stay away from the Amazon side so I don't get fired. For sure. Um, but they're definitely working on that. The, I don't know, like, you know, do you know, like batteries and light bulbs, right? Like they have to go somewhere else. So mm -hmm. even if, if you saw the point and shoot and it said, you have to take this to your UPS store, would you do it? So it's a great question. I think that some people would that care enough to download an app, right? That yeah. tells you how to dispose of things. On average, it won't work. Um, but there is a massive information gap that exists today. And so in a lot of jurisdictions, I mean, in New York, we, are, we have the privilege of having probably the best West management infrastructure in the States, probably at least top five. Um, but it feels like, A, if it's not going to be some technical solution like a consumer app, it's just fixing labeling, right? There needs to be some type of regulatory gravity that helps us create some type of framework around how things should be labeled. That's probably the best solution. Or what, I mean, maybe the point and shoot is a QR code. That's, yes. So you have to go to the consumer. You basically go to Walmart and say, Walmart, like you're going to require all of your suppliers to put this QR code and the QR code says what you do with this. Yes. Because I think like the, the plant thing works because plants are like relatively similar enough. I know a little bit enough. I know a little bit about machine learning, uh, hardest class I ever took in <laughs> um, that like you can do it because the plants look similar. Right. Mm -hmm. But every there's so many different varieties. Right. So how do you train the model? But a QR code, you just like hit it and then it says, you know, throw away. Yes. Throw away here or here. But you're right. If the goal is behavior change. There is a subset of products that people probably will not follow through on, like batteries, where you have to bring it somewhere else. And obviously, there's a, a bunch of literature on the economics of recycled goods in general. But 
Yeah, it feels like there's this massive information gap that should be solved. But the framework is interesting just to like step up a level higher, which is you're thinking about an idea, an entrepreneurial idea. And through the podcasting process, there's I definitely have got caught the entrepreneurial bug. And so do you think like, is this idea something that you want to pursue in parallel? Or you want someone else to go do it? Like how often, how often does like an idea come up where you're like, oh my God, I could fix the world or I could fix a small subset, but still make an impact? Uh, on average, it's, I typically just open source it. I, I'm so busy with the, with the games company as well. So I'm like, hey, if this resonates, run with it. You know, yeah. I, I would love to see something like this exist. Um, another well, idea. Can I run an idea that I have oh, yeah. by you? So I, I think like the best thing that we can do, if I can speak for both of us, is just broaden the message, right? Again, like get other people who, who aren't yet thinking about it. And um, Robert Downey Jr. has like this big climate fund as well, um, climate project. And we can put that in the show notes. But what if we did a large audience, right? And what if we certified sustainability Life, lifestyles. I don't know exactly what it is, but kind of like you were saying masterclasses because there's so much sustainability is such a big word. How do we get people to think about it who aren't yet thinking about it? Mm -hmm. When we first jammed, you brought up this idea of the sustainability consultant and I feel like this is something that will exist. I think there'll be a whole new career, whether it's a side hustle or broader opportunity for people to either a one-on-one -on -one parachute into someone's home or lifestyle and give them the checklist to go from beginner mode to expert, right? And I th when we were first riffing on this opportunity, the idea of starting with the kind of uber black approach where you start with high net worth, high profile individuals, you go into their lives, you help them self-correct in certain ways, and then you give them some type of badge to status signal that they went through this process. And then the opportunity from there is how do you democratize that to the masses? Is it a quiz, right? You just go onto site.com and you input what your key lifestyle preferences routines are and then it spits out some type of automated jargon or is it a calendly approach where you connect with a virtual expert so the company builds up this database of experts or consultants and in an hour or less they give you the how-to on how to make your lifestyle way better for the planet for a hundred bucks I don't know how how are you thinking about it? I'm thinking. Well, we talked about money earlier, uh, and I believe as I believe in capitalism. Uh, you know, I, I guess that's a big thing to say. But <laughs> as a general idea, it's worked to bring millions of people out of poverty, billions of people probably. Um, and so I think it's something, or like you said, spending money. Like someone puts a Supreme sticker. I don't know much about Supreme, um, but I am here in the land of Supreme in New York, right? And it's like, I don't know, fucking $100 for a sticker. You put it in your backpack and you've broadcasted to the world that you are willing to pay for this. And that it, it has a certain symbols, symbolism to it, right? So what's the, what's the equivalent? It's like people, the question is, first of all, do people want to broadcast that they're sustainable? 
and then what kind of sustainable and you're kind of doing that with your show you're like upcoming tv show right is that you're you're basically sustainability coaching and coaching now is like a huge industry in itself uh-huh. right and so do people want to do it for themselves do they want to do it so they can tell other people about it and then how do you check on it regularly because you could be sustainable today and then unsustainable tomorrow and there's also like the question is also does it make you an immoral person i think gen zers would tell you yes like Corey from uh, uh impact. yeah in snacks would say 100 you're a shitty person <laughs> right um but are you a shitty person because you used a cup right but then you bike to work there's just such it's so difficult but i think that i think like where the idea comes in is that you really make it personal which is that it's less at least what resonates with me is that it's less about broadcasting the world. It's not, you're not going to have a sustainability Supreme sticker. Um, that's green. It's more for you as an individual to like live with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you're going to go to them. Cause I also think like the just super pull back for a second, the future of the world is personalization, right? Like big tech, big companies, big corporations worked from the industrial revolution till now, right? Healthcare works because there's like, you know, 10% casualty is not the word I want to use, uh, but like there's 10% loss, but 90% of the people rose up. But the future is through like, you know, deep learning, machine, uh, machine like all, this, all uh-huh. that stuff is going to be like personalized health for you. And I think sustainability is going to be the same way. It's like, I'm going to come to you. You're going to hire me and you're going to say, Hey, I want to be more sustainable in my food specifically. That's the vertical that I want to touch. And I'm going to tell you, Hey, you know, like these are the impacts. This is the carbon footprint of these different foods. This is how you can reduce it. This is where it comes from. And then you get to live your life knowing that you're helping the world, which is again, Mm -hmm. kind of like going back to this like narrative arc. You're not going to, if you switch to a plant-based diet today, you're not going to see the impact. You might feel different. uh, Some would argue better. I might argue better. um, Although I do eat meat and at times, really putting ourselves out here today. Like, <laughs> but um, you're just going to be able to live with yourself, I think, better. But at the same time, like, we're such a, we're such an Instagramable world. Like, how many followers do you have? I heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in New Haven getting pizza at Pepe's. Have you ever been there? I haven't. If you look at best pizza. It's legendary, the, Yeah, right? it's legendary, right? Yeah. People, like, don't know about it. But, like, one of the people, one of the servers was asking, like, how many Instagram followers do you have? It's a thing. It's a status. So I don't know. I guess, like, I personally feel like it's a, it's going to be on the individual level. But does that work on the grand scheme or or I guess are other people interested? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the static signaling needs to be core to this idea. If you look at the most successful companies that happen to be good for the world, people status signal with their car by buying a Tesla, with their apparel by buying Patagonia, with... I mean, I guess they're home by putting solar panels on it. Uh, some people are trying to do it in their finances by doing, you know, carbon or climate neutral credit cards like Aspiration or Carbon Zero. So I think if this something like this will exist and thrive, it needs to give people the ability to flex. Mm. It, it needs to be baked in. And this exists for consumer companies, yeah. right? Like FSC, um, the like Forest Sustainable Council. I'm uh-huh. going to guess get that wrong. But it exists in certain levels. There's also like non-GMO. Like there's already labels mm-hmm. for goods. But what labels exist for people mm-hmm. besides something that's kind of like non-direct? Like the number of followers you have is a label, but it's not a specific label. So like how are you thinking? Mm-hmm. Is it a green leaf in your Instagram profile that like, but anyone could put that on, on there, you know? Yeah, there's a, that's that's the the million dollar question. How does this manifest? Some people are thinking about it in the form of 
making it a feature of a carbon offsetting app. I mean, there's what now 10 funded carbon offsetting apps that track your purchases, tell you what the footprint of those purchases are and let you offset those. So it feels like you could build something on top of a social graph there that says, hey, there's you know thousands of people that already bought into this type of lifestyle or narrative. Now you get this badge that lets you become the one of many who went through the extra steps to truly be good end to end. And then there's a whole equity piece of this too, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that like, are you paying to be in the club? Yeah. And how do you solve that part? Mm-hmm. It's super complicated, but just to pull back, the takeaway here is sustainability coaching or consultancy is probably going to be a field that exists in a major way how it manifests how people will be able to flex or show off that they've gone through some type of process is the big tbd and i think that if you could answer that there's a there's got to be a pretty meaningful opportunity there do you think do you have enough knowledge at this point through your podcasting or through whatever reading you do uh, on the side do you think you could be a sustainability coach I think I could. Yeah, I think I think uh, I, I, I'm not one that can take you through an LCA, some type of life cycle analysis, but I feel like there are very easy, repeatable things that knock off or have high impact, like how you power your house, the things that you eat, the way that you travel. And people have talked about it so much, so it's yeah. just kind of recycling what's been talked about already, for the most part. So we said that we want to hit, kind of hit like the big, like the head honchos mm-hmm. to start. But what if, what if you put out on the air on your next episode or this episode, saying, "Hey, I'm going to offer sustainability coaching to like one of my followers." You can even do it as like a way to grow your audience. Say like, "Hey, refer someone. You and that person who refer are both like put in this raffle. Whoever does it, I'm going to interview live on the show, and we're going to do this epi- like a, a sustainable coaching episode." That's a really good idea. That's a really good idea. We could divide. We could do that together if you wanted to. Yeah. Well, we should do that. So we are we going to coach them together or individually or? I think we have the guests on the pod. We could do it for net zero and in good hands, and we let it rip. That could be a a really good conversation to broadcast, and B would be cool to do that in tandem with you. I'm down. I'm down. That's a really good idea. Okay, so let's think about how it's going to work. I think because Morning Brew, also a New York, uh, New York media company, uh-huh. they, I think part of their origin story is that it was all referrals. Like that's how they grew. I think to like three million subscriber list. So to be right, we're we're very we pull back the curtain. We're not like hiding things. Like we want to grow our listenership. So what if the or at least I do right? I think we said like the whole part of this is that like broadening the people who are thinking about climate change. So we want to grow. So it's a one-for-one raffle, right? You refer someone, you get entered in, and then they get entered in. We pick one person. We bring them on the show for 60 minutes. We kind of pull back their lifestyle a little bit. Or maybe we ask them, what do you think? Do we like, do they open up the book and we get to choose? Or should we ask them like, what do you want to do to be more sustainable? Yeah, I think maybe part of the raffle entry could be some type of short questionnaire Mm. that breaks down what their lifestyle is and what where they'd like to be better and then we could go from there yeah because i've been thinking about this a bunch which is like 
people sometimes know what they want, but most of the time I feel like they just they don't. Want, they just yeah. want to be told what to do, right. right? Like I want to go to New York, and then I want to go like Peter. Like where should I go out to eat? Like it's like decision fatigue is so real. Yes, right. You're so, right. Maybe it's just maybe. We just do, we just, yeah. they want to be better. Yeah. And, and we can ask them like generally like, okay, is it like food, house, uh-huh. transportation? Do you want to help? Like, are you like an effective altruist? Do you want to help people in like distant lands that you can't see? That's a really, this is a good idea. Okay. That's a good idea. All right. We're going to do it. So this one, I, we, we, we talked about it briefly earlier, but I, I really do want to get your bullish or bearish take. And I don't know if the right positioning is masterclass for X or how to for dummies, but Talking about the theme of information gaps, uh, 111 Madison Park, right? I mean, quite literally, the number one restaurant in the world announced that when they reopen, their menu will be 100% meatless. Just Salad, also a New York headquartered restaurant chain, pioneered this notion of the reusable bowl over 10 years ago before reusable was a thing. They have plant-based straws. They have all these things where the core restaurant operation is one of the lowest footprints across all restaurant chains in the States. But the average restaurant, you know, foodpreneur or the average person, like we talked about earlier, that wants to start their own fashion line has no idea how to do any of the above. Maybe they have some idea. They heard about it somewhere. There needs to be some central point of truth where you have very high insight per line or per minute information that tells you how to do your business in a greener way. I'm so many thoughts. Um, First, I just want to say part of doing a podcast is the hubris that you know what people are interested in, right? And I think being an entrepreneur is the same thing, right? You're looking at the world and you're saying, the world is not doing it correctly. It's a broad assumption. The You talked about like, a, a, that's a really centralized way of doing business. And what's so cool about like anyone who's working on climate change, which means so many things, right? Is that right now it's so fragmented. My podcast, your podcast, hundreds of others. There's, I don't think there is a centralized body for anything yet. And so it's so exciting, but maybe again, this goes back to like, are we moving to a decentralized world? Mm-hmm. How to do business? I mean, like the question is, I, I guess like it's, we could peel back the layers. Like, is it, is it food, foodpreneurs? What was the word you used? I love that. Yeah. Like foodpreneurs or is that, and that's, that's the, that's the agency you wanted to create. Oh no. I'm, I'm just saying if you are a restaurant tour that wants, that has an existing restaurant or chain of restaurants, that wants to be a little bit better. Yeah. What's your how-to? It's coaching. It's coaching again, right? It's yeah. the same thing. Well, and Corey from Impact Snacks, his like you know stealth mode uh-huh. is just that, right? Um, and we talked about that a little on our show. I feel like it's comfortable saying that, which is uh-huh. that like he is he wants other brands to come to him and say, "How do I do this?" And then he's mm-hmm. going to make their supply chain greener. Mm-hmm. So it exists. I think it exists to an extent. Mm-hmm. One thing, just talking about like the compostable straws and all the other stuff. Like, I love my wife and I did a, a road trip uh, throughout the Mountain West, and I, we were being super red areas, but and there was no compost available, but they still had a compostable bowl, which is which I think is just because it's coming industry standard. In the same way that like renewable energy, like more dollars went to renewable energy investments and creation than non right this year so it's just like it's just standard practice yeah. but i think the idea i mean let me know if you feel differently i mean i'm 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 bare i mean i'm bullish 
I like the idea, but is it any different than sustainability coaching? The thing that I, sustainability coaching, in my opinion, is one-to-one. Okay. I envision this being one-to-many where you co-author these pieces from the experts that are doing it. So you spend several weeks meeting with, you know, Daniel Hum at 11 Park with uh, Sandra from Just Salad and they go down the list how they handle throwing away their disposable gloves, how they launch the reusable program. And anyone that wants to rinse and repeat or recycle any of those practices buys this course or this download and it just tells you exactly how you go from A to B. Oh, I love this. So what if, I mean, part of the idea is that if you had people who are sustainable certified, they could get access to these classes, Mm -hmm. right? If we're also talking about like, just a giant conference where these people are speaking. One of the things that Clubhouse is cool is it's basically like a distributed conference. Mm-hmm. So you have 11 Park Madison come on Clubhouse or whatever, right? You, live YouTube, it can be any any medium and they're giving the pitch. But is it more involved than that? Like, is it, because it's also like McKinsey Consulting, but for sustainability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know why. I just keep going back to something like a masterclass. Well, that's the beauty you know? of the internet, right? The internet is like so repeatable. It's like you put the effort in once. So like costs exactly. are high, time are high. And then however many people. I think so. Yeah. So we're having sustainability masterclasses. We're gonna have to find the paragons of sustainability. Yes. yes. Get them to do. I mean, that's kind of like an episode. Okay. I know you have to go. <laughs> Basically, I, I think the idea is we're gonna do, we're gonna try and be sustainability coaches, but maybe the future is we hire professionals who are true experts. Mm-hmm mash them up with someone who wants sustainability coaching and then people who are like that person can listen to the episode Mm -hmm. and change their life for the better. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah, man. That's great. Um, I guess the only thing that I'd like to say is listen to the net zero life podcast. What are you doing? Oh, what a guy. (laughs) I'm so grateful. Let's go. (laughs) So grateful for you. Things are coming on. Um, or vice versa. I don't even know. Is it my show or your show? I guess ours. Yeah. Right? Oh, I, I want to air it on mine. Yeah. At minimum. Thanks again to Peter for joining us today. You can find Peter in In Good Hands on Instagram at In Good Hands or his LinkedIn, Peter Levin. Peter and I are following through on our idea to bring a listener on the next crossover episode of In Good Hands and The Net Zero Life. Make sure to follow our Instagrams and LinkedIns to get the deets on how you can become our next guest. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. You can join the conversation about Net Zero Living on my weekly Clubhouse Office Hours by following at The Net Zero Life. Clubhouse Office Hours are Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at The Net Zero Life or by emailing Nathan at thenetzerolife.com. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice or anything else that can get me sued. This episode was produced by Tani Lovett. The original music was composed by Climb On. Thanks again for listening. And lastly, if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.